Well, hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan, and it is Crosstown Conversations. And here we are at a very strange moment in the city of New Orleans history. Um, we are, um, I, I said to my husband on the way over here today, that we're, we're kind of in the middle of an existential threat, you know, the threat to our region from a combination of climate change and coastal erosion and, you know, the levee system that doesn't let the sediment rebuild our marshes and all kinds of things like that that are going to hit us long term. And then we have this short term threat of um, shorter term threat of the political weather storm that we're dealing with with our um, uh, sewage system, our whole drainage and sewage system. Um, and now we have Tropical Depression Harvey out there just to say, Womp, you think that uh, we're coming in, in uh, the 21st century or something? No, uh-uh, we're, we're right here under your nose. Uh, and it looked like it was heading towards Mexico, and then it was the Texas, and now it's Houston. And now, you know, they're saying, first of all, this thing is going to sit, and that's always the worst thing. It's not moving fast. It's going to be sitting on top of um, Houston for a bit, and then it's either going to go in that way, it's sort of west, or it could go a little bit more north, or it could double back out into the sea and then come at us. We're going to get rain no matter how you look at it. Now, the good news is that we do have a new crew in charge, K-R-E-W-E, at the um, Sewage and Water Board. And these are interesting people that they've chosen as the emergency, I think they're calling it the emergency, I don't know what, team. Um, and Paul Rainwater, who I know from his work on the post-Katrina for better or worse, I mean, I think he actually was fairly um, competent and tried to get the job done. There were some political mistakes made, we all know, about how um, the post-Katrina era worked out. Um, and uh, Renee Laparolary, I mean, you just can't get more solid um, kind of person than Renee who's going to be handling communications. And the third person, actually, my husband knows him, and I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I've, uh, his name has slipped my mind, but he's kind of the tech guy of the crew, and he's supposed to be really good, too. Now, all, th all that said, things don't move fast when you're talking about infrastructure. Just ask our president, who has, can't seem to get around to infrastructure. He's getting around to just about everybody else uh, with bullseyes on their head that he has painted, but he can't seem to get around to uh, the infrastructure issue. So, um, I hope that they are able to uh, help, but I, I just hope we're not um, looking down the down the um, nose of, uh, of another um, weather event that could be uh, uh, very scary. And um, uh, Julie Jones, who's here representing the Bywater area, and um, from uh, New Orleans. See, I told you about my name problem, guys. So you're going to have to introduce yourselves. But we're, we're right. We have folks here from uh, New Orleans East, Gentilly, and the Bywater. Um, and this is my kind of, um, it's my third anniversary. I think it's my third anniversary. It might just be my fourth edition of neighborhood updates on the occasion of the anniversary of Katrina. So that's the other irony, of course, is that we're dealing with all these big issues as we come back into another anniversary. Um, and I'll never forget the anniversary date because my birthday comes two days before it. You know, the, the, um, the storm came through on the 29th and my birthday's the 27th. So I was calling... it around a little is that okay was it okay all that time did you hear what I was saying you didn't hear anything I just said the whole thing I had to do the whole in, uh, intro all over okay well a shorter version of the intro is that this is my anniversary um, issue of updates from our neighborhoods on the occasion of Katrina 
And it is while we are looking down the barrel of some serious weather again with uh, um, hopefully a new uh, effective crew at the Sewage and Water Board to help us get through this. Um, but we do have a major storm out in the Gulf now headed to Houston, but we're not sure where it's going to go after that. Is it going to double back and hit us or not? So that's the short version of my intro. Now, let me um, let, me let the, um, the gals that I have in, in the studio, all very powerful ladies who take their community very seriously and try to do the right thing, uh, introduce themselves. Julie? Julie? Hi, Julie Jones. I am the president of Neighbors First for Bywater, which is obviously from Bywater. <laughs> Hi, thanks so much for having me. My name is Emily Leitzinger, and I am the president of the Mid-City Neighborhood Organization in the Mid-City area. Hi, my name is Sylvia Siena Richard, and I am president of the East New Orleans Neighborhood Advisory Commission. And these gals, um, in the case certainly of Sylvia and Julie, have been at it now um, for quite a long time um, in terms of uh, really looking out for their neighborhood. And um, our, our mid-city gal is a little bit um, more recently to the game, but she's been working in the public sector and trying to do good things uh, for a long time. So um, all three, Julie, Sylvia, and Emily, we're going to talk about, you know, um, sort of a, a combination of, for those of you who were here, and you, you came a decade ago, so you were here pretty close to um, the beginning. I mean, close enough to have really experienced the initial aftermath after um, uh, Katrina, um, uh, in the case of Emily, here from Mid-City. Um, yeah, about, absolutely. you know, what your initial concerns and thoughts and perceptions were um, at and just after the storm and what you saw coming and how you regarded the future at that time and then how your perceptions have changed, how the city has changed. And the city has changed. There is no doubt about it, for better and worse in some ways, you know, good things in some ways, not so good things. And then there's this, have we returned to the old normal or new normal? Um, this is kind of an evaluation from the people who are right on the front lines of how um, we're doing. Okay, so um, who wants to start? I'll start talking about Bywater, if I may. Sure. Um, I've lived there. It's embarrassing to say I've lived there 32 years. That's a good thing. What, After well, living in the quarter. That's not embarrassing. <laughs> um, and it has changed dramatically since Katrina. That is, it used to be a pretty sleepy backwater. Property was cheap. It was a bohemian area. There were artists but and professional people. And you know, people, and also, let's not rule out um, – Bywater, I, I always equated to Red Hook in Brooklyn in that it was a neighborhood where people who worked the docks, worked the port. Oh, yeah. So it was, it was a working-class neighborhood It originally. was a working-class neighborhood, but by the time I got there in 85, it was not so much a working-class neighborhood. By that time, most of the people who had been working the docks, we didn't have a lot of docks that were being used then. And a lot of those people had moved down to Chalmette. Um, oh, is that what happened? That's where. Because that's interesting. Because I thought a lot of them went to St. Tammany, but they. I think there also. There too. There uh -huh. too. But um, Chalmette, that area was a big, big magnet for many of them. Uh huh. Uh -huh. And there, they used to come back. And now their sons and daughters come <laughs> to go to Bud Rips. <laughs> one of our famous old bars, which now has changed hands. Um, so it has changed. My order's changed a lot, and it's become now, I've heard it often referred to as the hippest neighborhood in America. And I thought, Whoa. oh, isn't this cool? Isn't this wonderful? But the but. result has been a huge influx in Airbnbs, a huge demand for development that has been granted, and many of the people... I don't know why we say hipster anymore because the hipsters of old could not afford this. Are gone. They're gone. They can't afford to live in Bywater. The neighbors, the professionals even, well, even the professionals, 
many of them cannot afford to live there. People are moving out. The old guard of Bywater, or the not-so-old guard, as is my case and many others, they're moving. And what's coming in is corporations with Airbnbs. We're not talking about even, I know the excuse is there's a little old lady and she needs a little more money and she wants to rent out part of her house. But most of these are owned by corporations. People who own them do not even live on the ground. So that's come in a big way. And that's probably the biggest change. Uh, there are a lot of part-timers. Um, now, when you say part-timers, these are people who live someplace else full-time and they have, what, uh, pied-a-terres? Maybe expression. a pied-a-terre, maybe a whole house. Here. The people, the, there's a very likable couple across the street from me. He bought the house after a friend of mine died. And um, they come from the Gulf Coast, and they come every weekend or so. Really? Uh -huh. So they're not neighbors. What we've lost is our voting base. Mm -hmm. And I know Ooh. with a neighborhood running a neighborhood mm -hmm. organization true. that we're losing. We've gained a lot of members because people are angry about it. Mm -hmm. But I know we're losing our voters, hmm. and this is is very serious. That's interesting. Okay, well, let's we'll come back to you, but uh, let's. Um, uh, uh, Emily, you want to talk a little bit about Mid City? You've been here for ten years, so you've seen it morph too. Mid City, Absolutely. to me, uh, again, I make these New York comparisons only because uh, I'm from there, even though I've been here also since 1975, 70, 70. Two is when I started living here, and then 73 is when I started living here permanently. 75 is when I bought my house, so I've been here a while. But um, I make some New York comparisons. So Mid-City to me, I'm from the Bronx originally. Mid-City to me is the Bronx. <laughs> All right. As I'll take it. As opposed to the Ninth Ward, <laughs> which is more like Brooklyn. I'll right? take it. The East is more like, I don't know, Westchester. Oh, yeah. So does that mean Mid-City's really scrappy? <laughs> um, what does it mean? Uh, it's a little bit more ambiguous. Huh. Or, at least it was. But now, again, Mid-City is another neighborhood where some of these hipsters from Bywater who got priced out of Bywater moved to Mid-City. Also, when they wanted to have families mm -hmm. and they needed to buy a house, they went to Mid-City. So you oh, gained absolutely. from... Uh, Bywater's loss, in a Absolutely. Way. When my husband and I came, like you said, about 10 years ago, uh, we came as a direct response to Katrina. We came, as many transplants did, to, to help, help to gut houses, to rebuild with habitat, and it stuck, and we stayed. Um, you know, fast forward a few years, we were living in the Marigny, and we got priced out of the Marigny. We bought in Mid-City because it's where we could afford. Uh, we now own two houses in Mid-City. Um, so we have seen a huge change uh, just in the housing costs. Uh, I don't think that I could afford the house that I'm in now mm, uh, if I were to try to buy it, um, you know, five or six years ago. I think that the housing costs in Mid-City have gone up exponentially. There are times where we've rivaled Lakeview. We've, we've exceeded some of those Lakeview uh, prices. Wow. Um, and that, that sort of goes hand in hand with the Airbnbs, uh, but then also, you know, changing in zoning. Uh, we've got a lot of commercialization of Mid-City that's happened over the years, and for good and for bad. We certainly want to promote economic growth in a responsible way in Mid-City, and that's one of the things that my neighborhood organization really tries to be purveyors of information about. Uh, we try to be more of an advocacy group um, and sort of empower those neighbors to get involved in the process so that they can reasonably and uh, intelligently go down to City Hall and, and have those conversations if it's not something that they want. Uh, because while I'm in a, a transplant, ultimately, I'm a transplant because this is a great city, and this has been a great city for a very long time. And it's my responsibility as a transplant, uh, as a homeowner, uh, and as a taxpayer in the city to make sure that we are protecting uh, what's been here for as long as it has been. Well said. Okay, Sylvia. So, Sylvia, interestingly, I think of the East also as a place that benefited from um, the 60s and 70s and 80s 
desire for the great American dream, the suburban lifestyle. So a lot of people moved out of my neighborhood, 6th and 7th wards, to the east. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that was another sort of reflection of a migration of people from one neighborhood Mm -hmm. to another. And it hurt the 7th ward and the 6th ward badly. It really resulted in those neighborhoods becoming less family, although people still went back there to vote by their mama's house, right? Yeah. But but it, it really, um, it drained a lot of, of, of homeowners out of uh, those neighborhoods. Am I right? Yeah, some of that is, is absolutely correct. But I think what is missing now that maybe was more evident in days past, having been a resident and um, uh, born and raised here in New Orleans, is that New Orleans always appreciated its residents. It always held them in high regard. No matter what they did, where they came from, who their mom and them was, you were part of a city that was part of you. And I think the way the progress of the city has gone, it has more or less emphasized technology, big business, uh, corporations, and have completely forgot about the heart and soul of the city of New Orleans. So when you take that into effect, that's kind of what happened in New Orleans East. We moved to New Orleans East because it was seen as as the way to go because you had a beautiful house with a backyard. You could have your kids in the yard. You were safe. You had a double-car garage. You had access to all of the amenities and services that you could get in the inner city. But in addition to that, you had what was conducive to family life and living. And that was what the city promoted. It promoted its life and living and keeping its residents happy, content, and moving forward. Now, that being said, there were a lot of things that was wrong with New Orleans. I, I, I have to give that some credence. And the things that were wrong with New Orleans was wrong with New Orleans East. And that is when we had the the influx of people that were there and then they left because of the change in the way that the multifamily and all of that started coming. And it changed more or less the integrity of neighborhoods because we said it was a, a... community of neighborhoods and subdivisions. Most of what New Orleans East was at that time was more or less 80% homeowners because you had all the different subdivisions. You had Lake Forest, you had Lake Barrington, you had Merley Manor, you had, you know, Academy Park, you had, Pont- well, just past Pontchartrain Park, but in New Orleans proper, there were just all kinds of different neighborhoods and various different and sundry price ranges. So you had neighborhoods that made up a part of the community that made up New Orleans East. That was wonderful. So now what happened after Katrina and before, we were taking a long, hard look at what was it that we needed to do to turn our community around, to make it whole, and to make the quality of life what it was before, the good part, not the part we wanted to get rid of. We knew we had some things we needed to fix, but we know we needed to maintain that which worked. And, and let me just stop you for a minute because what you're saying about what you wanted to get rid of, it, it sounds like multifamily well, was a threat in the sense that it became more transient. No, I think what happened was that we got predatory developers that put apartment complexes with very little regard for the safety and concern of its residents. Remember, we it, this was an area that people were together as communities. So we all kind of got along. There were always rental houses, doubles and fourplexes and whatever. It was fine. But when you had folks come in and they could build little small cubbies and put them stackpile one on top of the other, then you're putting a kind of situation that was promoting a, a way of life that wasn't conducive to living, not not ordinary, comfortable living. So uh, the Enonoc organization saw that and said, okay, if you're going to build in our community, you have to have so many square feet in a, in a, a multifamily unit. If you're going to have a, a family of four, you need at least 1,100 square feet and not 600. And you need to have a park as part of that development. And you need to have secure parking. And you need to have the kind of things that make people feel that they are just as important as homeowners. Because quality of life is a way of thinking. It's a way of protecting your, your turf a way of feeling that you belong. And some of that has, has, has 
kind of escaped us recently. You know, people don't feel that they belong like they used to feel about New Orleans. And it's maybe because of the Airbnb, maybe it's because of technology, and some of that is good. So it's, it's like a balance that we have to maintain, but it's a very tedious balance that makes it very difficult when it doesn't work. It aggravates everybody concerned. It aggravates the homeowners who are there who can't maintain their way of life. It aggravates the people who want to come in and you, they, they want to live differently and they're being told that's not the way that it's, – it's just we haven't really worked it out. We're in <laughs> flux. Yes. We're in flux. I would agree. The city's very much in flux, and, and that's why when I opened the show, and I, I apparently we were we had a little dead air there for a minute, so I don't know whether the point got across uh, that I made that, um, you know, that we're sort of in between um, the post-Katrina, just getting used to whether we're going to be a city or not. There was that okay. phase. Remember? We okay. came back and we said, oh, my God, you know, is – is New Orleans, is New Orleans, are we going to still be a city? There, there was a time, oh my, I remember so clearly. And, and you know, we go back to these moments uh, so fast. When I first came back um, during a time when we were supposed to not come back, you know, we all mm, snuck in. Green space, I we remember all, that too. Well, before we, even the before green, green space, yes. just, I just remember, remember coming in, and it. this is the point when it wasn't green. Now, I don't know about you, but, it, you know, my neighborhood is pretty green. I live on Esplanade in the Treme, and Esplanade is, you know, there are bigger land lots, so there's a lot of green. But when I came back, it was brown. Everything was brown. And it, the smell of the city was so weird. It really was apocalyptic. It was like after, the, after a nuclear bomb or something because there was no, no birds, no critters, no green. It was very scary. And you really said, oh, my, how do we come back from this? And you drive around the city, and, of course, you, when you'd go through the Ninth Ward, you'd just see so many completely collapsed homes that had been washed away by the break of the levees there. You said that all over. You, didn't, you just didn't know whether we were coming back. So there was that phase. And then there was – actually, I credit the whole green dot controversy – which, by the way, I have a very different take on from most people because I was a little bit on the inside at that moment, and I know what the discussions really were all about, mm -hmm. which I'm going to share with you in a minute. But um, there, was a, there was a phase when um, the green dots sounded like the biggest threat in the world, that, that it was, oh, I see, you're going to put a park where my mama's house is. But actually it was more about building in green landscaping elements that would be more protective. And, and that's what we've been talking about a lot since the sewage and water board drainage issues is that we have to slow the movement of water out of properties into the system because when it comes in too fast, that's when we get flooding. <coughs> but the fear of the green dot, in a way, actually um, – was a challenge to people. And they said, oh, really? You think you're going to green dot my neighborhood? Oh, no, you're not. We're coming back. And all over the city you saw signs that said, we're back or we're coming back. And, and neighborhood folks took up the challenge of how they were going to bring their, their neighborhood back because also the city, let's face it, was AWOL. It was AWOL, the, the city leadership. The, yeah. From the mayor and the council on down, and I don't just blame it on the mayor. They were AWOL. They didn't know, whoa, what? What are we supposed to do? But the neighborhood leaders like yourselves said, okay, well, I don't know in general about what we need to do, but I know we need to do this. Let me go to that this. What was? How did you perceive the this, Julie, when you first came back, what seemed like the most important thing that needed to happen in your neighborhood to make sure that it came back? I think everyone was coming back to buy water. Because <laughs> you're a little higher ground. Yeah. yeah, We're high ground. So we're we're right by hard. the levee. Yeah. So we were, you know, yeah. that was what pulled so many people and continues to pull probably more development. No, not probably. Definitely more development. Mm -hmm. And we can take. Mm -hmm. But there was no question that Bywater would come back. But now, but you did you were in the middle of a city 
that was challenged. The city was challenged, but I don't know. I guess we were cockeyed optimists. That's we, that's what you're saying. So your perception was, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. All of my neighbors were back. I mean, we all came back at about the same time, which was the middle of October. Um, and it was a wonderful time in an odd way because no one was working. There were no businesses going at that time. Um, oh, you need your refrigerator out on the, Oh, yeah, suddenly there'd be three guys hauling my refrigerator out to the street. Oh, you know, we can get food stamps because we, etc. Jump on, you know, jump in the car. Let's go. And so we it did It was a time of neighbors together. helping neighbors. Neighbors helping neighbors, exactly. And it was a very, I hate to use that word, special time, but it was a special time. It was, it was wonderful in a way. And in some ways it was awful because suddenly the electricity would go out for 18 hours. And... Um, if you didn't have a refrigerator, there'd be fruit flies all over the house and that kind of thing. But there were a lot of good things about it. And there were also people like Emily who were coming down um, early on to help us <clears throat> and to do whatever could be done. I think that was an important factor in my feelings about the city was watching people come to help. That, that made me Very feel... Inspiring. Right? Less lonely. Very less lonely. Emily, what was it like for you? Well, I feel like I can never really escape the the millennial label, Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, You know, I think that we do have a lot of heart, and there's a lot of people who lived um, in pretty crazy situations in tents and in bunks for weeks at a time out in Chalmette and Violet, um, coming, busing into the city to to do work uh, because – you know, New Orleans is a great American city, and there was people coming from all over the, the country to make sure that it was going to be uh, okay. So it was a crazy time. It was it was weird. It was apocalyptic, like you said. Um, and while we, some of us, a lot of us, didn't experience uh, August 29th, 2005, we certainly experienced the aftermath of that, and I think it was... Um, humbling in a lot of ways. I often say that there were really at least three hurricanes. There was the hurricane before the hurricane because the city was drowning. The city in many ways, New Orleans, was in deep trouble before the storm. We were not in a good place economically, and people were suffering. Then came the storm. We got hit hard by that, especially since we did not expect what was going to happen. We didn't really have an understanding of it, and you know, the day after people were sort of ready to go, you know, go have a barbecue or something before all of a sudden you looked on television and you saw water on Poydras Street and realized, oh, my God, the whole damn city's underwater. And then the third storm was the recovery, rebuilding storm because the politics and the bureaucracy of that were formidable to overcome all, all of that was, was really uh, uh, formidable. Sylvia, what about for you? Oh, I think New Orleans East was really fighting for its survival because in the very beginning they were talking about not going any further than the I-10 Milesian fields in terms of development. So we weren't looking at green dots as, as areas of encouraging growth of green uh, vegetables and, and, and uh, flowers and all that. We were looking at it as someone was trying to take our very existence away. Yeah. So we were fighting for recognition that we were worthy of an investment by the city to do what was necessary to bring whatever goods and services was necessary for us to survive. And our organization then realized that we were going to have to be the masters of our own fate, that we were going to have to make enough noise and we were going to have to talk to enough people and be politically involved enough to get the message out that we weren't going to roll over, that we are going to make sure whatever was coming into the city that we would have our fair share since we actually were the major reason you got the majority of this money because we had the majority of the damage was in the New Orleans East area. So naturally, you know, you look at the politics of it. Some of the money went for the downtown. Some of the money went here and there. But in actuality... A lot of that money would not have come into the city had it not been on the backs of the destruction of the New Orleans East properties. Interesting. Very interesting. And then what we saw, another miscarriage of justice, was that when the government said this was a reimbursement or a, 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 a um, what do they call it, a, a program where you get not so much reimbursed, but it was a, a, 
a program where the money that you're given was a compensation was a compensation program. So what happened was in New Orleans East, because the land was not as valuable, say maybe as Lakeview, so, but if you have 2,000 square feet house that was destroyed, land is land, the land is not destroyed. But New Orleans East properties were valued less because the land was less. But if you look at it, the land is not destroyed. So why is not the compensation more even-handed in terms of what you're giving to this area versus that area? And it had to be taken to court, and they said we absolutely were correct, that there was an imbalance of the way that this money was teetered out. That, that was actually one of the, uh, I think, the lessons learned and the change in the understanding of communities about what their role might be, and that is that you really had to figure out the legal um, avenues right. for the fight because uh, right. it, it, there were fights. Yeah, I mean, it was. Just, just people who, <laughs> uh, I'll never forget, I, I often tell the story about the formula for that compensation. Not only was it disadvantageous to the East, but it was disadvantageous throughout the city yeah. where they reimbursed you for the total value of your property if you wanted to sell it, but if you wanted to rebuild it, you only got a fraction of the pennies on the and dollar. And that was a deliberate policy that had two uh, sides to it. One was theoretically to keep people from going back to where it was too low, uh, but it also was political. The more, the more you kept people away, the more you reduced, quite frankly, the black vote, right. and the more that you, um, it you, was a manipulation. you increased the probability of, of, of red candidates getting elected. It, it, it helped in the uh, republicanization really of this region uh, in part too. That was another kind of outcome. So, all right, so we get um, into this phase of kind of, you know, figuring it out. Okay, now first it's, um, are, are we going to make it? And then there is, yes, we're going to make it. And then there's, okay, now what do we have to do? And then everybody started um, really figuring it out. And I was very much involved, as at least two of you know, in the UNOP and the master plan. I was out there going to all the meetings and listening to folks mm -hmm. talk about what they were going to have to do and what they wanted. I loved the thing of asking people, what do you want to see happen in your community? And have people think positively about their future rather than just about what they didn't want. I thought that was one of the most important outcomes of the whole storm. Gene, I think that was important, but so much was promised and so little delivered. So that we have been, we are UNOPed out, we are meeting out, we have gone to so many meetings, and yes, we want your feedback, it matters a lot to us. I don't think it matters very much to them, I think they do what they want to do. And they look, if you say something that covers what they want, they listen to you. If you don't, you can be well ignored. Thank you for coming, and period. So I think that, I think it's a bit misleading. Uh, what's your perception on that? You know, somebody much smarter than me uh, said that uh, disasters don't discriminate, recovery efforts do. So I think that it takes uh, watchdogs, neighborhood watchdogs, mm -hmm. it takes um, grassroots organizers, mm -hmm. it takes nonprofits to sort of fill those gaps and be those loud mouths in the room. Um, and I think that is what MCNO did for sure. Um, they came up with a 10-year plan. They developed a business association. Right. I, I remember now that you did your own plan. Yeah. yeah, and I think that it takes things like that um, mm -hmm. because uh, unfortunately nonprofits cover the gap that the government can't sort of extend to. So um, whether it worked or not, I think is still yet to be seen. Um, I still think that years and years from now, we're still going to uncover uh, drastic domino effect troubles that we haven't really seen yet. Um, I think we're going to see that with the affordable housing crisis in the city, with the fact that we're still dealing with stagnant wages. Um, there was a horrifying article that came out recently, and it was entitled, Is New Orleans Worth It? It actually makes my skin crawl when I hear it. So I think that there's a lot left that we're, we're going to learn, and I think it's going to be hard truths. I, I didn't see that article. Where, where did that run? Oh, Gambit. 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 Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I saw the headline. I couldn't read it. 
<laughs> I just couldn't read it. Well, it dealt primarily with the high cost of housing. Yeah. That many millennials have come here and they have to leave. So that's actually a, a, another issue that, uh, you know, again, we're in, as you said, this, this very careful balancing. We're walking on eggs in a sense. And um, uh, the, the issue of millennials is, is one of those issues that has, it's, it's filled with myths and, um, and prejudices on the one hand um, and, and kind of thank you, Jesus, on the other hand. I mean, that, that y'all came. I heard a number the other day just uh, yesterday, I guess, in the past couple of days, and I don't remember exactly what the number was, but maybe 8,000. I think I heard that 8,000 millennials moved here after the storm, and I've been wondering, okay, are they staying I mean, it's a great question. Um, the group of folks that I hang out with, it's, it's pretty a combination between natives and millennials. And, well, there's a lot of millennials, but natives and transplants. Um, you know, I think that people have to feel appreciated uh, and feel appreciated by their city, feel like they, are, they have ownership in their city. And uh, it, I think that that's where we're losing millennials if they're, if they're leaving. I don't know. Good, good riddance. <laughs> but you know what? That's probably some of what New Orleans needed to keep because that sense of belongingness that people came here and they felt in, just em, empowered and enveloped by the love and appreciation that the people felt for each other. And so with the development of the new New Orleans that they're trying to acquire, which is a lot of good in that. Because there are some things, I mean, I, being a, a retired professor, I understand that you learn from the, your students just as they learn from you. So some of the things we need to learn is still out there. Mm -hmm. And certainly we have to be open to that. But there's a lot of things that were that was worth keeping. And we've not paid enough attention to that. Because that's part of the draw that brought the people here in the first place. I'll tell you one of the things that drives me crazy is that yeah. we still are lacking information on a lot of um, uh, issues right in the neighborhood that we're talking about. So, for example, a lot of people one day were picked up off their roofs, planted in the Superdome or the convention center, wound up on a bus going to God knows where. They didn't even know. They were just shipped out of here. It was as evil, in a way, as, as the Trail of Tears or any other big mass exodus. And there they land themselves in, whether it's Houston or Baton Rouge or Atlanta or Utah or, or somewhere in the north. And, and, and a lot of those folks are not back. And the question is, why not? Who are they? Where are they? What's going on with them? Some of them may be doing better. The kids got put in – I know Houston made a big effort to get all the kids in school and help people find homes. And, and so there are people there who are, have benefited from, from uh, moving, but they still – they long for home, and they're not home, and, and New Orleans is home. And then you have people who can't come back because of the housing. They can't afford it. They can't afford it. I, I mean, you know, we used to be – a common rent in New Orleans used to be $500 a month, mm -hmm. and now it's over 1000 People can't afford that, and they're not back. So, um, you know – where are the people, and, and I feel strongly that so many of those people who are not back, that was part of our cultural legacy. I, I think so. That was our culture. When we talk about the culture of New Orleans, mm -hmm. you know, this, people mean different things about it, but one of the things that it is is it's our cultural legacy. And if we, if we don't have that back, who, who are we? So that's my next question. This is who are we now? Well, I, I, I think we're kind of a mishmash of a lot of things now. Um, we've got young people who want to stay. They're trying to find their way here in New Orleans and find employment that can give them a way to make a living productively and to give and to get a decent salary. I think we have the, the people that's lived here for a long time that are looking for the normalcy that they used to be able to live. And I think that, that we have a commitment in our New Orleans area. People stay in New Orleans because they love the city. And I know in New Orleans East, we had the majority of our people come back, and they came back because they loved living in their homes and in their neighborhoods. So that brings out the fight in people, you know, that, you know, I'm going to make this work for me. 
So how do I do that? And some of us are still trying to figure that out. How do we make it work for us? Because we know what resources we have, we know what resources we need and don't have, and we're trying to figure out how, how can we get them so that we can utilize them to make life worth living in our own communities. And that's, that's not an easy thing to figure out, to be quite honest with you. You know, um, Julie, uh, I'm one of those evil people who um, has a, an Airbnb in my house. So um, uh, it's not a whole house situation, and it, it really is for us. It's a, it's income is important to us because I run a nonprofit that has no money. I mean, so I, I've got to, you know, pay my bills somehow. So I do have Airbnb. What's been fascinating to me about it is the people that have been coming into my home because, first of all, we promote our home as art-filled, which it is, and so we get a certain kind of visitor. And you know what? To a one, they come here and they say, wow, we'll be back. Mm-hmm. We'll be back. They love this city also, and they, they do talk about wanting to be here. But you know what I tell them? So I had a couple in the, just uh, two weekends ago, and they were sort of thinking about New Orleans as a place to move to. They were coming out of Florida. And I said, well, look, here's what, here's what I tell people. I said, this is a great place to live. I wouldn't live anywhere else. And I'm from New York, and everybody talks about how great New York is. But I prefer to live here for a multiplicity of reasons, but the one thing you have to know is that you have to be a Mm self-starter, entrepreneurial. You have to be able to make it on your own here because there are not a lot of of companies offering jobs per se. So if, you know, they talk about New Orleans as an entrepreneurial city, and I think it's kind of a lot of smoke. But the truth of the matter is you need to be entrepreneurial to survive here. So it is a real challenge. It is not just a challenge. My husband calls New Orleans a little difficult. He doesn't call it the big easy. You, know? <laughs> you, you, ha- you have to be up for that challenge. Uh, it's, a, it's a sweet place to live. It's beautiful. You want to be here. The culture is great. All kinds of good things. But you better be up for it because it's not easy. And you need to make the rent. And you need to make the rent. So um, that's, that's what I say. Now, you're millennials again, Emily. Uh, how are they making a living? Oh, my. Um, I think wherever they can. Um, you know, the new, the new catchphrase is the side hustle. So you got to go out and do a little something extra uh, on the side, whether it be renting out an apart- or, you know, a room in your, in your apartment for that Airbnb cash or going and calling trivia on Monday nights or, or – <laughs> You know, making 50 bucks here or there, selling clothes on eBay. That's a big one I see. Um, and besides, they're 9 to 5. I'm getting some ideas here. Yeah, right? I've got a lot of clothes to sell that I can't hey. get into anymore. Hey, Facebook, man. Sell clothes on Facebook. Um, awesome. But I think that it's just a matter of making ends meet in any way. I think probably they're asking mom and dad sometimes because uh, you got to. Um, or taking a second that job. Doesn't go long. That doesn't go on forever. No, I hope not. <laughs> My parents have cut me off. Um, no, I think too, asking for help when they need help or moving, uh, you know, finding roommates, finding a cheaper place to live. Um, and I mean, we did it. We, we moved from the Marigny and we moved into mid, into mid city cause we could afford it when we could. But, um, uh, I think it's difficult. I think it's really hard. But we still managed to to have a pretty fun time here. You know, in the 10 years I've been here, I tell everybody that you go through hangovers in New Orleans. You know, there's like the two-year hangover. There's the five-year hangover. It's like the seven-year itch. And then, you know, then you're stuck. But I think people leave in those those hangover periods. You know, there's Mm -hmm. some horrible crime or violence that happens in the city and I don't care who you are that affects us mm-hmm. and it and it leaves impressions on our soul and I think I see the majority of the people leave during those times right after something critical like I know the people store. Who have like, left because of a yeah. crime like mm-hmm. August 5th this mm-hmm. year lots of people are talking about packing up and leaving oh really oh Is yeah that true mm-hmm. oh yeah that's the scary part and so that was actually my next question with that existential threat, back to the, the you know the the longer, the shorter, and the longer, longer term threat, uh, there are people who say um, this city will not exist 50 years from now, 100 years from now, because the ocean rise is so much greater and faster than anybody expected, because the icebergs are melting faster than anybody expected, and um, we we are low. We are just that's all there is to it. We're low. 
and then add to that the um, coastal erosion from the, the, the channels that should have been repaired that weren't, and, and we still have a legal system that's protecting the oil companies and not us. So, um, you know, they've never done right by um, uh, making sure that the oil companies clean up the mess that they created. That hasn't happened yet. Ask uh, uh, Mr. Barry, um, who uh, has worked so hard on his Rising Tides author. Um, so how about that existential threat? Are people conscious of that? Are, are, are folks talking about that or not? Well, I think in New Orleans East we were very concerned about it because of the Mystico and all of that things that happened in Hurricane Katrina. But one of the good things, New Orleans is a gateway. I mean, New Orleans East is a gateway to New Orleans. So we have the Lake Bourne surge, protect, surge barrier, which protects New Orleans East and the whole entire city. They spent about... Um, $14.5 billion, and it's two miles long, 26 feet above the water. So it is one of the largest and most expensive of that project, money with the risk reduction system. Is that the Lake Pontchartrain storm surge barrier? Yes, it is a surge okay, barrier. Okay, now did you see the article that was in my newsletter? Do you get my newsletter? No, I didn't. Okay, I, I've got to figure out how to uh, let people um, sign up better for my newsletter. Mm -hmm. So, y'all, I put out a newsletter the day before the show that tells you basically who and what is going to be on the show. Mm -hmm. And we usually have what I call in-depth um, or in other news. And in-depth will be stories that are related to what we're going to be talking about okay. on the show. And then in other news is just stuff that I read in the national publications that I, I think it's important for people locally to see. So there is this story called Lake Pontchartrain Storm Surge Barrier Could mm -hmm. Worsen Flooding in St. Bernard and Mississippi. And well, this came from the lens. Well, that may, it may very well be true. I'm not quite sure how that all works, but I know New Orleans East is probably the, the most protected area of New Orleans right now. Really? Be That's yes, it is. It is. It is. It, uh, what, along with extensive rebuilding, I wrote myself some notes and raising of the Lake Pontchartrain levees, as well as the industrial canal gates and pumps, New Orleans East is arguably the best protected area of the city right now. Oh, interesting. That's, it's a 26-foot high. We went out there to look at it. It's huge. It's massive. And it's out there right by our area. So it's more protective of, of the area so, that's so right Sylvia, there. So, Sylvia, it seems to me like one of the uh, jobs that you have as a neighborhood leader in um, uh, New Orleans East right now is a little bit of branding, a little bit of uh, marketing information. Absolutely. You need to get that story out there. Absolutely, absolutely. And and consequently, it can block the hurricane surge of the magnitude of Hurricane Katrina that would be coming from the Gulf of Mexico. You see? Interesting. So, yeah. And now the only thing that we do have an issue with as it relates to the various pump issue that happened recently, that the canals have not been dredged since 2008. And we've lost about 60 to 75% of their stormwater retention capacity. So millions of gallons of water could be retained in the canals and may end up in our streets and our homes and our businesses, much like was experienced in other areas of the city. So now on the one hand, we've got this wonderful protective area protecting us from hurricanes and storms, but then we are not having the drainage of our canals so that we are at risk of overflow of the canal so, area. So why aren't the canals, the uh, why, why, what, what's happened there? We were in the middle of writing a letter to the guy that just resigned or whatever left because we were concerned. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. we had written him a letter. We did well, a resolution. Well, you got Paul Rainwater now is yeah, uh, who's see replaced him. What a name to have instead of We're trying to prevent that surge, flood, you know, that storm surge flooding that would come into our mm -hmm. streets and possibly in our homes and yeah. businesses. That's certainly a, a possibility. Mm. So that's a concern. I mean, I. I understand how the people feel that had that happen to them. That's scary. So that actually brings up um, another one of the questions that were on my um, my imaginary um, notes. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it, it, there there's there are certain kinds of issues that now are threats and issues that you have to deal with in your neighborhood that are not necessarily a result of Katrina, but again, with the education that we all gained about planning issues from Katrina, we view a little bit differently and we, ha we maybe will address a little bit differently. So, you know, in, in the Bywater area, there's a big question about riverfront development. And you've got people mm. in the city of New Orleans who are so gung-ho for riverfront development that they, at the last minute, tried to change our brand-new, um, you know, comprehensive zoning ordinance to accommodate 
um, development on the river without the interference, so-called, of neighborhood participation. So that's that's a, that's a whole other level of uh, th that's a community-driven issue that was happening in a way anyway, regardless of Katrina. It's still there, and in a way it's worse because the area is more attractive. Oh, we're very upset about it. Uh, it was Maroney that brought the lawsuit about the riverfront overlay, but bywater is equally affected. And obviously, big riverfront development, development all over, and these are high buildings that have nothing to do with the fabric of bywater. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not 19th century, obviously, not 19th century buildings, but they, they don't harmonize, they don't blend in at all. On top of that, we have something we may disagree on, uh, the threat of a cruise ship terminal in the neighborhood. The neighborhood has not great infrastructure, not great roads, in fact, horrible roads. And the thought of having a cruise ship terminal within the neighborhood that has to be reached by buses and trucks, suppliers, many, many suppliers, the many, many people who come by taxi or bus, however, they t come to get on these 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, who knows, uh, passenger boats. And that would just flood the neighborhood, flood it in a different sense of the word, obviously. Is that a threat? I mean, it, it, it is a threat. Now, the port will say, oh, we're just considering it. No, it's not a done deal. But we are very concerned about it. We <coughs> haven't named any other area they're looking at. Uh, St. Bernard would love to have it. But and you'd love St. Bernard to have it. I would love St. Bernard <laughs> to have it. But yeah. they would like to have it. I mean, I've talked to the president, you know, of St. Bernard Parish and so on. They, they would be very yeah. happy to have it. But mm. it is overwhelming for us in a tiny neighborhood with frame houses mm. to have tour buses go by and that quantity of people that are brought by cruise ships. So... We have some big concerns. So, yeah, so that's, again, that's the kind of an issue that was there before, and it comes back. And the only thing I'll say to you, and I'm not, uh, uh, I don't have a position on it because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm as sensitive to what it can mean as anybody. I live on not that far away. Um, so the one thing that I think will be interesting to see how it plays out, but you really do have a whole new cast of characters at the port. And I think that some of these new folks are um, more neighborhood, more community sensitive, and, and want to do things um, right. I, I, who knows what that will mean in the end because they are, their first job is to develop the port. Exactly. Um, so yeah. that's they've been their very pleasant. They've come out to us. They've talked with us. They've yeah. met with us. But there's a point at which you think, you know, your first job mm -hmm. is for the port. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. How about Mid City? Wow. Well, um, I just want to go back to one thing really quickly. When you talked about the the, um, the climate change and, and those issues, I think we touched on that briefly after the flooding on August 5th, and it was sort of dismissed. Uh, because um, the Sewage and Water Board screwed up. <laughs> uh, but I think it is something that's on our minds, and it is something that we need to be paying attention to and not just dismissed. Uh, just as a shout-out to someone on Twitter that I follow, uh, Skooks said, future eclipses, 2024, you can drive to Dallas. 2045, you can drive to Pensacola. 2078, you can take a boat to where New Orleans used to be. So I think that it's uh, it's definitely something that we're still talking about and we should be considering. Yep, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And um, it's interesting that uh, I think another uh, thing that has happened since the storm that it's different from before, and that is people are so much more uh, conscious of uh, sea level and um, mm -hmm. uh, and where and, and elevation. Um, we were very conscious of it, my husband and I, when we came here, because we came here, my husband was working on the redevelopment of Mississippi after, the, after Camille. And so through that process, he learned about the importance of elevation. So when I just settled on Treme and Esplanade as the neighborhood I wanted to live in, he checked out elevation. <laughs> and um, luckily, uh, um, the elevation right on Esplanade is good as, as you get 
closer towards Orleans, of course, mm -hmm. and broad. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different territory. So it changes from block to block, and you really do have to be very conscious of it. And, and, and what about for you? Um, uh, I think you've already, in a way, stated it, uh, Sylvia. It, it, it's about this issue of um, uh, family-oriented neighborhoods versus, um, I, I keep using the word transient, maybe that's not fair, but well, um, developer-driven yeah, neighborhoods. We, we just don't want the commercialization of our community. We want to have or maintain some of its integrity. I mean, there's certainly room for plenty of development. And New Orleans East has a lot of very affordable uh, tracts of land that can be used for industrial development as well as commercial development. But it has to be a planned process. It can't be hot-podged or just put in where it fit in. It's, it's got to be a planned process. Is it any better now than it was before the storm, that, quote, pl planned process? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now the, 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 the community of East New Orleans are informed. And if they didn't know, they know now because usually we're the source of information for them. And the way that the commission was set up, when they're going to have any really big developments, we don't have a vote of yay or nay, but we certainly require them to come to us to at least inform the community so that they get the feedback that is necessary to make sure it conforms to the community that it's going to exist in so everybody can exist with some amount of harmony because there's nothing more intrusive than someone to put something in your neighborhood that you knew nothing about and had no input in. That, that's not the way of, the, of making sure that residents stay. So they've got to feel vested in that process, and that process needs to be inclusive. And that's what Enonoc tries to do, to make sure that it's inclusive. We have just a few minutes left, and I can't resist um, a plunking this on the table. So uh, how does this mayor's race, this election, mm. play into our conversation? I'm, I'm just curious. I'm not asking anybody to, to, uh, um, to reveal their, um, their, their planned votes, but um, how do you view the, the, the process of this election? So far, I, I haven't gone to any uh, forums yet. And I'm actually hoping that um, I can get some of my arts people together so we can have an arts forum because we're getting so little support in the city, it's, it's pathetic. And I'm hoping that each of these, I think each of the three leading candidates in this race um, ha may have it in their hearts to be more supportive of our culture, and I'm, I'm hoping for that. But um, I, I, don't sense, I don't sense that the dialogue in the election is spot on to the issues we're talking about. I feel like there isn't enough dialogue, period. I mean, I would say that there is one candidate that's going into the neighborhoods, that's talking, uh, doing a listening series, um, and going to those forums. Uh, that said, whether or not that candidate uh, is responding in the way that people want to hear, um, or if it's actually an action plan, I'm not sure. Um, you know, because this is such, it, for me, elections are so issues-based, it's very hard to find one candidate that's going. I'm going to be able to align myself on every single issue with. And so it comes down to the lesser of the evils uh, in some regard, or at least the person that you spend the most time with uh, and maybe has answered your phone call or answered an email here or there. Uh, as neighborhood advocates, I'm sure we've all spent a lot of time talking to elected officials, um, and oftentimes those are the, the, I don't know, those seem to be the only people that answer their emails at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I think that there we're missing some issues here, and there seems to be just a lot of campaigning around uh, what's flashy and what's exciting. Um, but I do think that there is at least one candidate that's getting into the neighborhoods that's from the neighborhood uh, that was here and, and really influential in the rebuild of that person's neighborhood after the storm. We'll talk a little bit offline about the election, too. But, Julie, how about you? I, have, I haven't really followed. I'm sort of in the same situation on the mayor's race. Now, we also have a race in District C for council member the present member, Nadine Ramsey, and the previous member, Catherine, uh, Kristen, Palmer. Kristen Palmer. And I, I just throw this in on the 6th of September at 7 o'clock in Bywater. We are having a forum where the two will not debate each other, but ask 
answer questions. Be sure and send that in to me for my next newsletter. I'll, I'll put that in the newsletter. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Uh, from what I can understand, there is going to be a forum in New Orleans East area in September. I'm not quite sure whether it's the, what date it is, but they are going to have a mural uh, allow people to hear what the candidates have to say. I think oftentimes it's very difficult at a time like this because there's been so many issues in the city that have been uh, capturing our time. We really haven't had an awful lot of time to really listen to what the folks are saying about their candidacy. And, and, and uh, I think one of the big problems we have, too, is our new, local news media. I often say that we don't have the news. We just have sports and crime news. And uh, we really yeah. do not have the accountability uh, that you would get as a result of a, of a real exploration of the issues of the candidates. And so I, I think that uh, we need pressure on our news media locally to do a better job of telling us what the candidates are thinking and saying so that we can get uh, the basis for making judgments because I think we still don't really have that. I hear my uh, Ain't My Fault um, uh, theme music coming back up, and, and the, the message of that is, Gene, if you don't get off the air, it is your fault. So um, thank you, Jazz, for the reminder, and um, I thank you all for coming in. It was really um, a pleasure to talk with people who care and put their time and efforts um, where it counts on behalf of um, this city that we all love. Thank you, Jane. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. All right, y'all have a good weekend, and keep your eye on the Gulf. I'm afraid we have to pay attention. I'll talk with you next week. Gene Nathan, Cross Town Conversations on WBOK. We're going to be good.